0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 61 of the Hyperthesis Podcast. I'm Liam.
1: I'm Feely. I'm Patrick.
0: By a very special special guest, um Alex Casey, who's currently a PhD student at McMaster University. Uh, a little quick introduction to Alex. Um, he completed his bachelor of science at McMaster University, where he conducted undergraduate research in solid-state materials physics. Um, and additionally, he completed he completed his undergraduate thesis on the stability of black hole metrics. So he did a little bit of different stuff during his undergrad, not just one topic, which is always good. Uh, Right now, he's completing, oh, I said his PhD, I meant his master's, but I'm assuming he'll continue with his PhD. Uh, Right now, he's completing his master's of science at McMaster University, working for Dr. Sergei Sibonarikov, which uh, we actually had another guest, um, Andrew, who worked for Sergei as well. So this is the second Sergei student we've had as a guest. Um, And right now, Alex, you study theoretical cosmology on large-scale structure of the universe. Um, and the statistics of how matter is distributed throughout it, if I got that correct. Yeah, yeah, you got that.
2: Oh, are you you the one solving the dark matter problem?
0: (laughs) Oh, not entirely, but I would like to. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Um, Before we ask you about your life and work and hopes and dreams and all that, um, I have an intro topic which is mostly just a correction, actually. So in episode 59, um, I I, I said a lot of things that I wasn't 100% sure about, and I I said I wasn't 100% sure about them, but I I came back and I wanted to kind of talk about it a bit more and be a bit more concrete. So I commented on how um, the age of the universe, according to our current theory, is around 14 billion years old. And I talked about how you can calculate that for a particular special reference frame. Uh, and I think I use the language I called that reference frame an absolute reference frame, um, but there is no um, general relativity tells you that uh, there is no such thing as an absolute reference frame. Everything's relative, right? So I think the correct wording I should have used um, was that there's a kind of a special or a more natural reference frame to use. Um, where the math is easier or things are a bit nicer than they would be in other frames. Oh, so relativity tells us that there's nothing wrong with having special reference frames, um, as long as the laws of physics aren't different in them. So the special reference frame where I think, I mean, Alex, you might know more about this than I do, but I think when they calculate the age of the universe, well, you, you can actually determine it experimentally by looking at the cosmic microwave background. Um, but also, the cosmic microwave background, from our, our point of view, is anisotropic. So, depending where you look, it looks different. Whereas, there's this particular natural reference frame of the universe where the cosmic microwave background, if you are in that particular reference frame, it is completely isotropic. So, mo- no matter where you look, the cosmic microwave background looks the same. So I think when you calculate the age of the universe to be like fourteen billion years old, you can do it from that reference frame, maybe.
3: Uh, well, I know there's, I know there's actually like more of
0: a, I think theoretical way of being able to
3: calculate the age of the universe because in reality we know that, for. The majority of space-time seems to be like homogeneous and isotropic on large enough scales. And so if you sort of try and write down the equations of Einstein's field equations for something that's homogeneous and isotropic, you get like a equation like an equations of motion kind of for the universe. And those are called like the Friedman equations. And from that you're actually able to sort of, you know, do uh, you know, do some math and do some integrals and eventually find out that, that you can actually calculate the age of the universe through sort of these calculations for like if the universe universe is kind of expanding so you can kind of say given plugging in all the values and parameters that we measure for the universe today uh what should the age of the universe have been when you do all that math and so i know experiment or experimentally i think that's probably just like a a way to verify it but i don't really know as far as i know i don't really think there there's a way to do it to the CMB. because the CMB i know has a certain like we know how long ago it was. Before that, we don't know anything, and so I don't know if we can really say anything about like the age of the universe behind. Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: okay, yeah, I guess I you can say like up until a hundred thousand years or so. Like, like this not the cosmic microwave background didn't it form according to our theory around a hundred thousand or so years after the supposed Big Bang? About yeah, but everything
3: before that is like we we don't really know anything because the C CN- at least not to uh, experiments because the CMB is kind of blocking lamps. Because the entire thing about mm-hmm. the CMB is that everything before that was too opaque for any sort of like light to be transmitted through. Because like the entire like, when the Big Bang was first happened, everything was so hot that light was scattering off everywhere. It wasn't it uh, we didn't really have a chance for light to easily move through and to kind of have like a transparent looking universe and the CMB is sort of like that last surface that we kind of see right when the universe is sort of becoming transparent and so but everything before that at least experimentally or uh, or observationally we can't really say much about aside from maybe theoretical uh, theoretical experiments or sorry through uh
0: yeah. So, so I,
2: they're all just modeling and guessing. Yeah, essentially. Like, I'm not a huge Big Bang believer, but, you know, I think there are some problems with the Big Bang theory. But it's, it's a reasonable proposal, right? Like, when you see, oh, it's expanding. If you do time reversal, it's much go back to a point. Like, okay, you know what? There's some sense to it.
3: Yeah. Well, <laughs> actually, it's, it's funny you say that because it's not really the Big Bang, I think, that's uh, disputed. It's. Uh, but really more of like the the inflation of immediately after the Big Bang was inflated, because you can sort of, uh, you can sort of argue that, because like we, we know that like the CMB was actually sort of like the, the final smoking gun evidence that we had for the Big Bang existing, because it was a hot, dense universe, exactly what we would have predicted if we had a Big Bang. But if you actually sort of like look more on the inflationary sides, you can find that you have some weird scenarios or it can lead to some weird scenarios such as something called bounce cosmology where if there was a, a previous universe before for some reason it went through some phase of uh shrinking and eventually reached like a small minimum point until it eventually burst out again uh and sort of like re- the universe is going sort of rebirth like that so i guess in that sense you can kind of say the big bang doesn't exist but uh
2: or just kind of like a supernova, right? stars die and like they collapse into one and then just explode, kind of type, but in the yeah. universe instead.
3: Yeah, I think I think definitely yeah, exactly. I think like in that sense, like a lot of people agree that the universe was very small at one point. But whether it was like a singularity, like uh, like you said, or if it was actually some like something big that shrunk to its minimum size and then bounced up again, then that's up to up for debate still. I think.
0: I'm. I I'm a firm non-believer in singularities. <laughs> so wherever you have a singularity, it means your theory is wrong or it's missing something, at mm-hmm. least as far as I'm concerned. But maybe there is a true singularity. Who knows? But I, I doubt it.
1: I uh, I know that was a, a a common, I guess, debate maybe two decades ago, a decade ago, where um, will the universe end in a big crunch? And now we kind of accepted kind of the heat death of the universe where it will just kind of keep expanding and go on forever. But I still kind of like the idea of a big crunch, as one being maybe the end of the universe someday, and also the start of the universe. Because if you have this big crunch, all this energy's maybe not necessarily going into a singularity. Uh, to not upset Liam, but instead uh, going into this something and then re-expanding again. So I mean, big crunch fans, let's hear it.
2: Well, I think one uh, of when I think about it too. When if the heat death universe happened right it is so everything's kind of flattened out you know spread out that you wouldn't be able to tell if it's crunched or is is flattened out if it's so so nothing right like how could you tell it's not a point
0: <laughs> Any, anyway so yeah so I think what I was talking about in episode 59 relating to what Alex said is you take these diff- you take these equations. From general relativity, um, and you can calculate what the age of the universe should be. And I think they do it in these special co moving coordinates, or these special coordinates where, from that frame of reference, everything looks isotropic. Um, so that that's kind of what I was talking about in episode 59. And one other thing I was talking about was that I didn't really do um, this thing called false vacuum decay. Well, actually, we talked about false vacuum decay and um, the vacuum catastrophe problem came up and I didn't really I I don't know too much about it. So I kind of just I think I said a few comments on it and then end it with I'm not really sure. I'll come back to this later. Um, So I just wanted to comment on that and do it a bit more justice. So there's this problem called the vacuum catastrophe problem or the cosmological constant problem. Um. Which is this huge disagreement between the observed values of the vacuum energy density of our universe, um, otherwise known as the cosmological constant. And so there's a huge disagreement between what we experimentally see and what we should theoretically predict based on um, quantum field theory, which is we've talked about this before. It's you know a really good theory, it turns out. Um, but when you do the experiments, you predict that the vacuum energy density of free space should be around 10 to, the 9, 10 to the minus 9 joules per meter cubed, something like that. You can use different units, but those are the ones I used when I looked it up. And it's, it's, it's pretty small, like you might expect. Um, and you can actually determine this. Based on experiments that involve spontaneous spontaneous emission, the Casimir effect, and this thing called the Lamb shift. Which are all these effects that you need QFT to describe. And I think I mentioned that in episode 59. I mentioned at least one or two of them. Um, So 10 to the negative 9 joules per meter cubed. That's roughly the energy density you should get of the vacuum. And for reference if you do a little back of the envelope calculation, because I always like to do this. Um, if you have an apple, there's in an apple there's about 95 calories, you convert that to joules, that's about 400 joules. The volume of an apple is around 270 centimeters cubed. Um, I just Googled this stuff, but I'm sure it varies widely, but just from Google, um, you can calculate the energy density of an apple to be around 10 to the 6 joules per meter cubed. So that's about 10 to the 15 times bigger than the energy density of the vacuum that we experimentally see. Um, however, when you do quantum field theory, so you use our best theory that we have so far to try and predict what the vacuum energy should be, you get around 10 to the 40 to 10 to the 110 joules per meter cubed. <laughs> So you get about 50 to 120 orders of magnitude greater than what you experimentally see. Um, and this has been called, quote, the largest discrepancy between theory and experiment in all of science and the worst theoretical prediction in the history of physics. <laughs> so even though quantum field theory works super well, a lot of the time, for some reason, there's this, there's this vacuum catastrophe problem with this huge disagreement. So that's it has to do with the fact that gravity and um, quantum mechanics don't work well together, which we talk about all the time.
1: Uh, sorry, just a quick correction. You said it: the energy density of an apple is about 15 times that of the uh, uh, experimentally sorry, yeah. confirmed vacuum manager, 15 orders of magnitude. Yes. 15 times would be um, yeah, one. scary <laughs> one way
0: or another. Yes, I meant 15 orders of magnitude, so 10 to the 15 times greater. A lot of zeros. So, yeah, I just wanted to comment on that to get, get the point across a bit more. Um, so physicists have a lot of work to do, it turns out.
1: I will also say this is a win for experimentalists.
0: Yeah, I don't actually know the details of how they experimentally determine that. Um, so maybe they're wrong, but, I mean, they're probably more right than the theory is, honestly. Anyway... So that was the intro topic, and now we can move on to the main topic, which is our wonderful guest, Alex. You are the main topic. So, Alex, (laughs) can you tell us about what you're doing at McMaster right now for your master's um, thesis? So what research do you do?
3: So I think kind of like how you put it earlier on, I'm, I'm kind of studying the distribution of matter on large scales and that might seem a little bit sort of like or or how do i say like i know every time i describe this i feel like it's a little bit odd to explain why we're doing this but i find it's so interesting once you actually go into the deep physics because the reason why studying this sort of like uh, the way that matter is distributed on large enough scale on large scales is because we know going back to inflation that inflation is supposed to describe how why the universe that we see is supposed to be like uh, flat and homogeneous but the issue with that is that it actually does that job a little bit too well uh, up to the point where if we had inflation and only inflation then the universe would be kind of too smooth for any sort of uh of matter to form under the gravity and i don't think and i think it's like to the point where we wouldn't even have sort of large-scale structure that exists today which forms like you know galaxies and planets and everything And so the way that we remedy this is to introduce the fact that we have sort of quantum fluctuations that happen uh, near the end of inflation, such that these small fluctuations actually sort of perturb matter in such a way, in, in, in a way that now we don't have a perfectly homogeneous background, but it's homogeneous enough to agree with what we see today on large enough scales, but inhomogeneous enough that we can sort of have a uh, clustering of matter that is essentially starts to like inf- get influenced with each other under gravity and cluster up and essentially form these planets and galaxies and just uh, matter distribution that we do see today. And so, uh, I think that's a question.
0: Oh, I was going to say, so without these, so so going back a bit, um, you have no. If, if you have no quantum fluctuations, pretend we don't know about them, if you do all this general relativity stuff, Um, you find that the universe should be isotropic. So it should be this every the energy, the density should be constant. But you say that you you mean like on large scales, right? So if you zoom out really far, um, the density is roughly constant. But, you know, like a galaxy, like, I guess the universe isn't constant. Um, It's not a constant density. But can you not describe that with GR? And you have to kind of put these quantum fluctuations in to deal with it, or is that how's that work?
2: It sounds like you ha- we have this clustering, right? Like, well, if we model everything as smooth, there wouldn't be clustering, which forms stars and um, galaxies. So there must be something in the mass distribution that contributes to this. Why stars are formed in, um, in addition to this smooth the universe
3: yeah exactly because because uh we we can't have it that the universe is too smooth to the point that matter hasn't had enough time to sort of uh, gravitate or self-gravitate and sort of form these like large structure or, Yeah, to form these structures that we see including galaxies and everything so because so we kind of need to include these quantum fluctuations because these uh first of all they're sort of like Well, accepted that there should be quantum fluctuations. Is there any principle in everything? Uh, But at the same time, these are these also seem to be exactly big enough that they sort of give us enough of a uh, more or less matter in certain places that they can start to self-gravitate and it's formed these sort of like structures over like large, like these galactic filaments you might see in these like pictures of like the large scale structure, or if you even look small enough, uh, like these galaxies and planets that we see.
2: So how, how does this work? Do you work with, let's say, like a master equation, try to dynamically evolve that? Or is this more like a simulation
3: that that you run, like numerical simulations? So the way traditionally it's been done is you sort of assume that, you know, once, once you have your, assuming you have your perturbations already there, you kind of want to study how these perturbations evolve over time. And then the way that you can even just like formulate, like the way that you can even, Mathematically generate these perturbations are just sort of like taking your equations for inflation and sort of adding a small uh, perturbation term in them, and then all of a sudden you can do your you know, regular physics and figure out what the equations of motions for these perturbations are. Um, and so that's kind of how we have an idea like what the general for, or how we, that's how we kind of get an idea for like how these perturbations kind of behave early in the universe. But afterwards, we when we want to study more how they evolve throughout the entire evolution of the universe, like after inflation ends and we go through our Standards uh, expansion of the universe, then we we kind of have this traditional approach of treating everything as a like as a fluid more or less, and so you can kind of apply, especially if you look on scales that are like like within the observable universe, then Newtonian and because because matter sort of behaves very slowly compared to like yeah your relativistic stuff, uh, you can kind of apply regular Newtonian uh, gravity and regular fluid dynamics to your uh, perturbations and now kind of study like the motion of motion of matter as it clumps as just a fluid which is coupled to gravity and is influenced by the movement of gravity
2: well can you clarify what you mean by inflation equation like like what do you mean by that like what do they describe like is this like is this describe a ball like like i'm just trying to understand what is inflation equation Uh, sorry sorry i
3: should have probably explained that a bit more uh because we know that inflation typically kind of we can describe it as a rapid expansion in space, oh, space, yeah, in space. And so if you want to try and formulate that better using quantum mechanics, then you, you just do your regular quantum field theory and throw a, throw a scalar field at it and, treat all of it and treat sort of like the mechanism of inflation as a scalar field. And what you actually find is there's, is, um, in order for a, like a quantum field to sort of, Drive inflation, like sort of give it the energy that it needs to really expand really quickly, uh, is that it, it kind of needs to follow something called like the slow roll parameter. Where you end up having like a very very flat uh, top for your for the potential, and so the the quantum field sort of like has a lot of potential energy but doesn't move a lot. But then as the as the as the quantum field, which is called the inflaton by the way, sort of like uh, gains more and more kinetic energy, that actually kind of ends up sort of mathematically being a like a slowing down of the inflation. So while you so are- So it described
2: the boundary, uh, the boundary of the universe. Is it like a evolution of the boundary
3: of the universe or the what's inside? Or it, just, it just the, like it, it sort of provides like the energy that you need for this rapid, for this uh, acceleration. Because like I think in order for inflation to happen, you kind of need this rapid outward ex- acceleration uh, happening. And so th- in order for that to get the energy, you kind of have this quantum field which is sourcing this energy, which is sort of like putting energy into the universe for it to accelerate outwards. And so while this, uh, while, it ha- while you have a lot of energy in the, in the scalar field or this quantum field, uh, it, it, the, the universe is accelerating a lot. But then the second that this field sort of loses all its energy, that sort of like comes down to the universe slowing down. And that's kind of where you go back to your regular Big Bang cosmology from that we kind of accepted before.
0: So I, I remember we took this QFT in curved space time class with Sergey at Perimeter. Um, and although he, he talked about inflation for the last couple of weeks, I did not pay as much attention as I should have because I was doing it over Zoom, I think, at that time for some reason. But basically, we, we don't have a theory of quantum gravity or else we would just do that. So you have to be careful, and I, I remember you always do this minimal coupling, is what they call it. So you take, um, you take your quantum field theory, which is it's it's like you take quantum mechanics, but now with you can now have changing numbers of particles due to the fact that oh my god, my cat, oh sorry, my cat jumped on my computer setup. <laughs> um, so so you take these quantum fields, and you minimally couple them to classical gravity, which is just a fancy way of saying you're trying to calculate how curved space-time influences the quantum field. And I think for like standard inflation, you're doing the same thing, right? You're saying general relativity gives you these specific equations that describe inflation, so the Big Bang. Um, And what happens when you try and you take the vacuum of space at one instant very early in the big bang and say these these this quantum fields these vacuum modes or whatever um when they're coupled to this curved space time to these einstein equations how do they change as time goes on and how do these little vacuum fluctuations in them influence the matter as it as space time expands maybe <laughs> i i i kind of know what i want to say but i'm having a hard time wording it
3: yeah yeah I, I it's almost, i'm also trying to remember exactly how the course how, how the course was, or how they phrased it in the course but yeah it's, it's kind of like that same idea where we have these quantum fields that are coupled to gravity uh and then you have your whole like action or lagrangian uh, but and but then that's that's actually kind of like a Good starting point to what I was talking about before, because if you have these quantum fields, then adding these small uh, perturbations to these scalar fields is the same as is the same quantum fluctuations that we're studying. That that we're studying in this case, because uh, like typically, like you like you said, you have some scalar field and it's coupled to gravity. But then if you add like a small variation or a small like a small delta phi for the change in your field, and then, then and you do your regular like or the stuff or Regular physics, then that's how you get the equations of motion for kind of studying how these perturbations change over time.
0: Yeah, we we do this in ultra cold physics all the time, actually. Um, I guess the simplest way is like you can imagine you have like a pool of water and it's flat. There's no waves in it. It's just motionless. And you put, I don't know, you like make a small wave in it, and the wave travels through the water. Um, You could do fluid mechanics and describe all the water in the pool, but that's kind of unnecessary. You can actually just ignore the kind of background water that's not moving and just describe the little wave of water on its own. So you can kind of describe that small perturbation through its own wave equation instead of working with like a fluid mechanics equation that describes all of the water in the pool. And I think it's the same thing. I mean, mathematically, you say you linearize it or whatever you... You take a first-order perturbative expansion for the physicists out there.
2: Well, I feel like conversation is getting into very advanced stuff, so I'm gonna kind of ground it a little bit because, like, a lot of physics—well, a lot of physics that physicists do—is basically have something that are simple or not so simple would be wrong. But like, let's say, like homogeneous and uniform and easier to describe, and we make this perturbation, which just mean we disturb it a little bit, right? And we want to to describe how this perturbation evolve, And a lot of physics come out of that because we like something that is linear. We love it when it's linear, but we know nature, most things in nature are not linear. And how do we describe that? And, you know, even Taylor expansion in a bit, it's like perturbation, right? You want to see what's around that point. That's why we do tail expansion and a lot of theory paper just doing tail expansion on, on known theories and just publish a new thing. Here we go. Here's the expansion about this point and And it really describes a lot of nature that are more elusive just by disturbing simple things we know. So, so I, oh, Patrick.
1: So I'm curious. So when you're trying to figure this out and looking at how if I'm understanding correctly, how the perturbations essentially um, shift and move and change over time. um, Are you looking at specific time scales? So you mentioned inflation, which depending on who you talk to is either like the split second that the universe was created or it's still ongoing. um, Depending on which group of physicists you're going to talk to. But what kind of, I guess, time scales are you looking at? And um, also maybe length scales if if that's applicable in this case, considering we're... In this case, you might be dealing with the entire universe, then length scales might not make sense.
3: No, no actually, length scales is actually uh, like kind of the core of this entire problem. It's actually a great point to bring up because um, the entire thing with studying with large-scale structure is that you're looking at like extremely large scales. So you're kind of ignoring... Like, as funny as it is to say, galaxies are really small in, in this, you uh, in, in on the length scales you're really examining because you're trying to look at not necessarily the distribution of galaxies, which you, you can also actually do as an, as an application, but that's a different story. Uh, but you're trying to look at more like the distribution of like, uh, like, like clusters of galaxies and sort of like things on like scales of maybe like 10 or 100 times uh, larger than the size of galaxies. and so. I think, like to to put some numbers in for people who are, who or who want the details, I think we're looking kind of like more on the order of like about a hundred megaparsecs and larger for these sort of like distributions. Whereas galaxies, I think, are about five megaparsecs. Don't don't quote me on that, but uh, yeah. So you're really looking at like really really massive uh, scales, and the reason why is because it's really these scales that we see the homogeneity and isotropy of the universe, and so. Uh, when we're doing sort of like the study of these perturbations, we want to sort of apply them only to those length scales. Uh, and because those, that's where we see these nice properties that we see in the universe. And in terms of uh, time scale, that's also another interesting question, which is uh, important for the, for the research, because uh, we're sort of like we, the difficulty in sort of in studying these perturbations is that in the early, early on, uh, like you guys were saying earlier, uh, earlier, can sort of like tailor expand and sort of like look at like linear linearized growth of these perturbations but the issue is as uh as time goes gets longer and longer then the evolution of this clustering goes from being well described by linear theory to becoming highly nonlinear, and so your standard perturbation theory actually breaks down very early on and you can't actually use perturbation theory to kind of study how the matter evolves from the early universe to what we see today which is the which today is the only sort of data we can collect on matter distribution. So it's really important to make that link between how uh, matter evolves from the beginning of the universe to uh, what we see today. And because we can't do this typical uh, perturbation theory, we have to sort of develop all these new nonlinear methods, which is kind of like the core of the difficulty and why this field is kind of relatively recent. Because I think it was really... 2010 that that this study really took or this field of nonlinear dynamics really took off and people were able to really start getting a good amount of information from studying this nonlinear clustering from the beginning of the universe and comparing it to what we have today
0: so that's where your research comes in that you're not doing this and you're not standard cosmology the stuff that you see in textbooks so so how what are you doing to I guess how does your work relate to this nonlinear dynamic stuff and you're trying to understand it more now than now that this time scale doesn't evolve linearly anymore?
3: So what we have and like what my supervisor has
0: done, he's that uh, they've created sort of like
3: this more quantum field theory approach to sort of studying how these how these uh, perturbations have evolved over time. Uh, and it's and so what they, what they have is that you kind of assume you have some sort of small perturbation and we have some really really complicated function that kind of maps uh that kind of gives like a very rough mapping of the universe at the early times to what we have now and uh using this formalism what i'm really trying to do is kind of apply it and see whether or not the the formalism that they've created really matches with the sort of like distribution of matter that we see today because you can sort of assume your initial conditions you can Use the equations that they've made to sort of see what the distribution of matter or like the probability distribution function of the distribution is like today, uh, and and so I'm kind of there, kind of filling in the steps, making sure it's fun, and then comparing that to results. So two questions from that.
1: Uh, so you talk about the distribution of matter and trying to model that, seeing if everything essentially matches what we have today. Are you including? dark matter as well it's always a oh. or sorry yeah. <laughs> no i just as, as someone who used to study dark matter i
3: feel that needs to be asked yeah. so as always yes the final result of all of this is to eventually be used to study dark matter because with regular matter you know we can see it and everything uh but the end goal is kind of like the uh once we have like sort of like a, uh, an understanding of how matter is matter is distributed uh, then the next step is sort of to apply that to galaxies because with galaxies they they kind of like act as bias sources because wherever you see a galaxy you see a large collection of matter uh, and so you can sort of have this sort of like non trivial relationship that relates the distribution of matter to the distribution of galaxies and so once you, once we figure out how whether the formalism works for matter distribution we want to do the that and apply it to galaxies, but then you can take it a step further because you know that while like or, or, while matter as uh, a lot of or while galaxies sort of have a lot of matter and sort of act as like a bias towards that, dark matter uh, actually acts as sources for like for uh, gravity for galaxies to form around, and so then we can kind of repeat the same steps that we did for galaxies for matter to the galaxies and do that for galaxies to dark matter now, which kind of gives us a better understanding. Or we hope about uh, like properties of dark matter, how it's distributed, and maybe even like the statistics during the uh, early universe.
2: I think I've said this before in this podcast, or oh, have I? I? I definitely told Liam this before, but you know, I have to look around when I when I say this because I'm at Queens and surrounded by snow plus people. But I'm one of those dark matter non-believer. But
0: <laughs> you don't believe <laughs> in to anything. Me,
2: well, I believed in the... <laughs> One electron theory. Oh, well, not no. Really. But, oh, no. <laughs> no, no. But, well, I mean, I think they're, well, okay. I just don't like the, I, I would love to be wrong about dark matter that people actually found it, but I think they're not gonna. But <laughs> one of the main reason is that, you know, there is kind of hidden variable kind of type of solution again. Like, oh, of course, there must be something that we don't see that deal, deal with this rather than try to, um, amend uh, general relativity which is going to be a difficult t- thing to do that to just account for those phenom- phenomena which I think that could be right they could find dark matter but I think it's just um, it's a more beautiful description without it of, of the universe in my opinion <laughs> well, I think
0: they found like they they found dark matter in some sense because there's
2: no they found the, the phenomena that couldn't ex- be explained right they uh. The, the how fast um, the edge of galaxies move is faster than predicted or, then, or there might be some mass that we don't see that i think that's one of the strongest evidence of dark yeah, matter
0: yeah you can see like invis you can indirectly see invisible mass through telescopes and lensing and the fact that you know there should be gravity where there's stuff where, where there isn't matter so yeah it we kind of know it's real but we don't really know what it is i guess
1: Okay, there is more evidence than just the rotation of galaxies for dark matter, such as from the cosmic microwave background. Uh, There's a whole bunch of stuff, a whole bunch of calculations that have been done where it shows, oh, this is where the matter is, and then there's this whole other thing that's dark matter, just from the cosmic microwave background. And also there's gravitational lensing from places where there's obviously no uh, electromagnetically interacting matter there. So there's a lot of evidence for dark matter. Whether it exists in the form of like a WIMP or uh, an axion or whatever is questionable and might be part of the reason why I don't do that research anymore. But dark matter, I, I would say with like a very good confidence does exist in some form, just maybe not in the form that people
0: think it is. Yeah, we don't know what the form is. We just know it's there. And also James Webb Telescope, May it may have, um, there's a nice PBS space time video on this. About there might be, we might have seen uh, these so called dark stars, which is something I've talked about before, where the stars that form due to dark matter, but I, I'll talk about that another time. But but the gist of it is, yeah, we don't, I guess you're right, Feely, we don't really know what dark matter is, but we, we we're pretty confident it's a thing,
3: yeah. And I also do want to add like, there is even like uh because I, I kind of used to be in the bober like i don't really know about dark matter and everything but the more and more i look into this the more I'm like yeah no it's, it's definitely there now especially because if you have if you look at things like uh for example i think it's called the bullet cluster where it, w- it was kind of like the idea like we had two cl- two galaxy clusters that's kind of like collided with each other and what, what would you what would you expect if you had sort of like a regular gravity there and not dark gravity dark matter is that being this should of matter should have like sort of like grouped up in the center, but instead you found that they kind of like kept moving away from each other and they couldn't have followed this like heavy, heavy uh, amount of matter that we see in the middle of them that we can't actually see, but we can kind of measure that it's there through lensing. And so a majority of the matter seems to kind of just like, or the majority of the planets kind of seems to pass through each other. And they kind of didn't follow what we would have expected them to follow if it was just regular gravity kind of acting there.
2: Oh, that's why I th- it's like it might be General relativity has some problem that need to figure out uh, that maybe there's some stellar phenomena we are not aware of. And I just like to be a uh, skeptics on dark matter. I'd be nice if they found it, but, you know, we'll see.
0: Well, I don't think general relativity disagrees with dark matter because dark matter is just matter that you can't see. So it obeys all of the general relativity stuff, right?
2: Well, yeah, yeah, but is a solution proposed to that rather than try to? Well, I mean, there are a lot of people try to amend generativity with um, futile effort so far. <laughs> so, well, maybe maybe the future, the description would be different.
1: Yeah. Anyway, uh, aside from dark matter and uh, opening up that can of worms again, sorry about that. For the work that you're doing, um, I did mention the cosmic microwave background, and we discussed it in intertopic. So. For your initial initial conditions to essentially grow and see how it compares to the universe as it stands today, are you using initial conditions, say derived from like anisotropies in the CMB, or are you just kind of randomly making these perturbations and seeing how they play out?
3: So, well, actually, a lot of it's, a lot of it actually is sort of like, trying to figure out what the initial conditions are because that's kind of like the the big question that we're sort of doing all this for because we 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 see what we have now we can sort of we're trying to figure out sort of like figure out how it it evolved throughout time and so we're trying to see if we can move that backwards and figure out what the initial conditions themselves are because that's sort of like what the big question is that we don't know uh which is what the initial conditions themselves are Uh, and so in terms of yeah, yeah, which actually there's also, that's also a whole can of worms that uh, I, I could talk about it for hours because then there's a whole discussion as to whether or not the, like, the statistics for these perturbations are actually Gaussian or non-Gaussian and all that stuff. But yeah, it, it's, it's not like we're, it's not like we are kind of making an initial guess on what the, on what the initial conditions are. We're sort of trying to work backwards to figure out what the initial conditions themselves are.
2: So I think this is a good time to little pivot into your life a little bit because uh, when I see someone who are in very mathematically rigorous field, it's all interesting to see how you got into it. So since you're doing your masters now like right, what really got you into, let's say in undergrad like what got, got you into this type of cosmology or this kind of type of investigation rather than let's say you know like optics or the type of physics or even chemistry. You know what? What got you interested in these kind of stuff?
0: Yeah, I I guess so what to add on to Feely's question, like during your undergrad, you did two different types of research. Actually, you started working in a lab, and then you ended up working on um relativity. So, I think what what Feely said, I I'm asking the same question, but also how does your how did your undergraduate research tie into that?
3: Well. I think like having gone into my undergrad, I kind of had the impression that I've always kind of wanted to do more theory, but I thought, hey, I might as well just really try experimental for a little bit and see whether or not it's like you know a hidden calling for me or not. But I think I very quickly found out it's I did not like experimental. Sorry. Um, and so after having that, I was sort of like you know more confident about like yeah, I'm I'm probably just going to end up going to theoretical stuff. And that's where I ended up finding my supervisor for my undergraduate thesis, where I kind of worked with a little bit more, like, GR and stuff. And that's, that I, I found myself enjoying a lot more and sort of boosted my confidence and wanted to kind of, like, do research in sort of, like, more theoretical stuff. As to why cosmology specifically, uh, I found that cosmology was always kind of, like, the really cool but weird field in the sense that not only do you kind of just need to know about one thing, but well, you kind of need to know a little bit about everything for because the universe just kind of started off at a very, at a very small size, assuming we believe in you know, Big Bang and everything. Uh, but so because it was very small, quantum effects had to uh, play a role there. And then it grew very, very big. And now we have GR sort of playing a bigger role in sort of like the later history of the universe. And so cosmology is kind of like one of these weird uh, things that are fields where you kind of need a little bit about from every kind of field like you do need to know a little bit about quantum and q of t you need to know a little bit about gr and uh, uh gr and gravity and particle physics as well because like to kind of like because of the particle physics as well is very important in the early part of the universe uh being able to like, kind of describe what inflation might be and everything so yeah it seems like it's a little bit of a little bit of everything and that's what i reflect kind of about it so okay let let me walk you further
2: down the memory lane then so even before you undergrad what really sparks you into getting into physics or mathematics in general were you growing up like loving math or because i always raise example with liam that that you know liam liked insects and biology and stuff growing up but look at what he does now The 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 you know a lot of people say what the wacky physics he does right so like were you always like Really good at math in high school. That's why you want to pursue physics, or was it uh came later
3: on? What was your story? I, I feel like I really liked math and physics like fairly early on. But like fairly early, I mean like probably like around the age of fourteen or fifteen or something. Because I know like I I used to watch a lot of like more TV than I probably should have as a kid, but. Uh, every time I would get bored from like flipping to like all these old cartoons, I st- stumbled across like you know the, uh, the Discovery Channel, the Science Channel, or something, and that kind of caught my attention, and I started watching a little bit more. Until like when I realized like, hey, this stuff's pretty cool. Uh, I kind of realized I kind of wanted to like maybe learn a little bit more about it, and then when I had the chance to actually do that, and you know in school, I found that I did end up liking it. I wanted and like try to work really hard in like, those fields because those are the ones I found most interesting, and Kind of wanted to do the best ads, and then with math specifically, it's a little math was a little interesting as well because I I never saw math really like one of those tedious uh things to do, but I always found it like every sort of exercise is like a little game kind of play. Like for example, algebra, it's sort of like you know it's just a little puzzle trying to figure out what the value for x is, and so maybe having that kind of mindset kind of pushed me more towards wanting to like either like focus more on it or like ended up changing my mindset and really. Viewing it as like a "quote unquote" fun thing to do. Well, I, I get it though because
2: I used to help out with like math camps and stuff. So the the problem sets or the the problem we used to um to give kids or even give given to us are like fun little puzzles, right? Because they are beautiful sometimes. Like you know, they're a bunch of circle. You find this this weird area but you know there's a bunch of tricks you learn so it's, to me it's really similar to solving pu- like physical puzzles that that show but it's just abstract and it, to me it, it, there's much more degree of control you can have because it's just in your mind you you can come up with wacky idea how to solve it which i think fosters creativity which is really important in research especially in theoretical research right uh, I imagine when you do like solving your um, equations and stuff, it's it's not as straightforward sometimes. Sometimes you have to come up with um, strange ideas. Maybe I would do this method on here. Maybe I use this method in another field. And um, what was that like in your own research? Is it more like very standardized way to solve it? And then, um, you know, maybe numerically solve it or is very um, what's called imaginative based idea where you have to or, you know, try to throw many tools at it and try to figure out how to solve this really complicated thing.
3: Yeah, so I feel like, well, maybe, maybe I don't have the right mindset for this, but I feel like at this point, there's already been, like, so many different tools and, uh, like, really interesting approaches to do a lot of things that I kind of haven't, I feel like I haven't had the chance to really be too original when it comes to that because there's been so many other, like, you know, formalisms or things that exist. And uh, so in terms of like my own sort of creativeness towards it, I feel like I haven't had the chance to really do that yet. Um, But in, but yeah, but, it, it, but in that sense, it's like, yeah, like, I I do find that like there's always like you know, a little, little bit of a toolkit that I have when it tries to sort of figure out this problem or like if the first thing doesn't work, I throw it out and try something else and I kind of go through that. So hopefully something works.
2: Well, Actually, I was, when I was listening to this writing workshop, there's a very good quote that um really helped me. It was that, we are not here to do original work. We are here to do valuable work. And I think that's really important, right? Because all these tools that over 100 years have been developed extensively. And why are we trying to be original? You know, we can use it to solve the problem more effectively. So I think that's an important thing to note. So in stress in of time a little bit, so I'm going to move on. Instead of your past, look forward to the, the future. So Leah mentioned a little bit about the hopes and dreams. This is one thing that we always ask our guests. So, what am I going to ask? This is a very loaded question, right? So, in the future, what are your hopes and dreams? So, what I mean by that is not like, oh, I want to be an engineer in ten years. Like, who you see yourself? You see yourself doing cosmology as a, a cosmological physicist, or you just um don't um i not sure yet. Like, what do you see yourself? Do you see yourself doing? A, a lot more math in the future as your dream to um, you know sit down solving complicated equations and math. Or what type of life um, do you see for yourself?
3: And I, you know, I think you, you you actually said it. I would kind of, I would like to really see myself sort of continuing uh, with research and academia, especially within uh, cosmology, because cosmology is like every once in a while there's like there's this new development that's been happening. So there's been there's a lot of still open-ended questions that I can kind of really see myself, like, really wanting to try and do and also working on in the future. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I kind of see myself just, like, hopefully staying in and, like, sort of continuing down this line of, like, working in cosmology and sort of still doing this math, still doing some of the coding if I need to. Hopefully, maybe, you know, teaching as well if I have to. Uh, and yeah, like, maybe just being a professor at a university.
0: So you're finishing your master's this year. Well, I guess this school year, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so next year at some point. And I, I don't know, are you planning to continue through with, with Sergei with your PhD? Or are you thinking of looking around, or are you just not sure yet?
3: Oh, no. I, I We actually recently talked about it. And like, yeah, I think we both agree that it would be good for me to stay and sort of continue the type of research that I'm doing with him, which is great as well because wow. he's kind of like also one of the big – Leading uh, researchers in in the type of field that I want to do. So,
0: yeah, Sergey's a big name. Everyone knows him. Even people I've met at conferences who shouldn't know him knew him. That's scary.
2: Well, <laughs> <laughs> the thing um, about cosmology, to more like a general public, is that you know, especially when you're entirely theoretical, right? It's less heard of because people, people well. Uh, scientists or physicists, people hear of in cosmology, are the one that are more famous because they, oh, they here's the model they came out with it. And then there are thousands of other models that a lot of people, very intelligent people, worked on that just never seen the light of day. I mean, um, I remember. Didn't we have a GR conference or something at the, our university? The bunch of like alternative theory of gravity, and almost every single presentation basically said, "Oh, Einstein's wrong," and here's uh, the alternative way to look at it. And you know, they're very rigorous and nice, right? Then, and, and but very few could turn out to be somewhat agreeable with the experiment or or measurable. So, so what do you think of the the past? forward is it um i think everyone tries to find something that's measurable and agree with the experiment or or yeah you know, i think there's another side of cosmology where they just purely predict uh, the well where we cannot find evidence yet so would you like to look into those part or more of the observable part
0: this is this is the last thing so this is the last thing and then we got to move on for the sake of yeah. time
3: so sorry, were you, were you kind of just asking like why I kind of think of like the current states of cosmology and the research, or? Well, I mean,
2: like in your interest, like are you more interested in look at something measurable soon, or, or like something that's very like purely, uh, not really observable at the moment, but maybe in a hundred years, maybe we can break the opacity, opacity somehow into the earlier universe.
3: I guess, ideally, I would like to do a little bit of both because it's, you know, it's very hard to get your ideas uh, accepted by the, the, the scientific community if there's no real way to really test it or, I mean, like, yeah, if there's no real way to really, like, you know, sort of be like, here's my theory, but trust me, it works, uh, but I don't really, yeah, but I don't really have, like, the evidence to show you. So, yeah, it is, it is important if I, I do think it's a good idea to sort of work towards things that are more applicable towards being observed really early on so you can kind of, like, build legitimacy for whatever theory you have but that being said as well sometimes you have to sometimes you know working like pure theoretical models you sometimes you just have to do it if you really get a good idea to that might explain some you know fundamental problem that still exists within a field. so a little bit of both would probably be my approach for it
0: well thank you very much for joining us today alex it's great to have you and talk about your research a bit some inflation things thank you for having me Yes. So to end off the episode, Patrick's going to be telling us a story about the oldest things in the universe. But before he does that, he's going to tell you how to reach us. And he's going to ask you, Alex, how people can reach you if you would like them to. Oh,
3: yeah, I guess if people want to reach me, there is my McMaster email, a university email, which I think you should be able to just find if you Google, like, McMaster physics graduate students, and then there's a whole list, thing that they, they have with all their email addresses. So if you Google like you know, Master of Physics Graduate Students and I click on like the first link, there's probably gonna be my name there as well as like my email address for anyone who wants to
0: reach me. Yeah, we can post it in our description too if you want. Or if you don't yeah. want, that's fine. I'll, that's fine with me.
1: And uh, if you if you also wanna reach out to us, we can pass your questions on along too. Alex as well. Uh, you can reach us through email. We are hyperthespodcast at gmail.com. You can ask us questions and questions for our guest, uh, along with have comments, have suggestions for topics, or if you would like to be a guest on the show as well. We've had a lot of guests this season already and a lot more planned. So if you would also like to be a guest, we are more than happy to have you if you are an expert in your area. We also have an Instagram. You can follow us at the where we post updates when we're posting episodes, along with updates during our breaks uh, and other fun things to be interactive with the audience. You can also send us a DM. Uh, we check that as often as we check our email, if not more. So go ahead and send us a DM if you have episode suggestions or you would like to be a guest as well. We are also on YouTube. You can check up to the end of season four currently on YouTube. Uh, and they are very nice visuals and If you spot the differences between the different seasons, then you will win the knowledge that you are a good fan of the show and watched all the YouTube videos. But regardless of how you find us or how you listen to us, whether it's on Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, Audible, or through Spotify, which we're based out of, feel free to give us a like, a comment, a subscribe, give us a rating, share share your thoughts about the podcast. We are more than happy to hear and take feedback in about it. And again, if you have questions for Alex, you can either contact us or you can send him an email, which will be in the description for the episode. So, moving on to the story, as Liam alluded to, we are going to be looking at some old things. And I was going to put a joke here, but there didn't seem like a good place to do this. So, I'll start with saying that way back in episode nine, so long ago in terms of uh, episodes, we did a, we did a story on observing the universe, ending it with a brief discussion about the James Webb Space Telescope that at that time had just launched and was starting to collect data. We also featured a couple episodes later, Parisa Nazari, talking about measuring things like space dust using such sensors as the james webb space telescope which again very exciting that we have it now now more recently we discussed observations made by the james webb space telescope of galaxies that were just too old to exist in our current model of the universe and its age and this sparked the question what is the oldest object in the universe and it's really nice that in our intertopic we were kind of discussing how we can determine the age of the universe and talking about that throughout the main topic as well, and dealing with variables like that. But before going to the furthest extents of the observable universe, we'll start with this question by looking at Earth, and what the oldest things are that we can find on Earth. Now, the average human life expectancy in Canada is just under 82 years old. However, the oldest person that's actually officially recorded was Jiang Kalman, who was 40 years older than the Canadian average, and she lived to 122 years and 164 days old. Now, for reference, the oldest Canadian was over 117 years old, but still 5 years off of the record. However, for animals, humans are relatively short-lived, especially compared to some even vertebrates out there. We, we see tortoises as synonymous with age, such as Edweda, the Aldebra giant tortoise, who lived to the age of 255 years old. And we know that Greenland sharks can live up to at least 500 years. So that means there are Greenland sharks around today just swimming in the ocean that that could have been around shortly after the Europeans came over to uh, the Americas. Now, glass sponges, sponges are also a type of animal they have been found to be more than 10,000 years old. That's impressively old, and compared to the oldest tree in the world, which is known as Methuselah, which is a bristlecone pine, that's more than doubles its age, because it's just under 5,000 years old. Now, moving from living to the inanimate, let's talk about rocks. Rocks undergo changes over millions of years, and this means that a lot of the rocks that we have today haven't really been around for too, too long. Especially if you look at rocks that are recently formed in the crust, such as the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, those are quite new rocks. But we do have very, very old rocks too. And some of the rocks that we have found are over billions of years old. Uh, And we are able to use various dating techniques, especially uranium lead dating, uh, that's able to determine the age of these oldest rocks. Now the oldest rock that we've ever found is actually in Canada, up in the Northwest Territories in the Castaais as a region of rock that is estimated to be about 4.3 billion years old. That's quite the jump from the bristle or from these sponges which are 10,000 years old to these rocks on Earth that are 4.3 billion years old. Now the oldest terrestrial material, um, don't ask me about the def- definition. I'm not a rock guy. But the oldest terrestrial material we have found so far is a zircon mineral that is about 4.4 billion years old. So, about 100 million years older than the oldest rock that we found. Now, of course, there are uncertainties with these numbers, but these are approximately how old they are. And this 4.4 billion year old piece of zircon was found in the Jack Hills of Western Australia, which is actually a place that's well known for having old rock formations. Now, turning our attention away from the Earth and into the night sky, we see the Moon, which is estimated to be about 4.53 billion years old. And common theory now suggests that it was formed when Earth collided with a Mars-sized planet called Thea. And this ejected a bunch of mass, which then formed the Moon. Now, the Sun formed around this same time, just a few tens of millions of years earlier, allegedly. Uh, around 4.56 billion years ago, along with most objects in the solar system. Now, there have been older objects discovered in the solar system, because all of it came from something, such as meteorites that have crash-landed onto the Earth. The oldest meteorite that was discovered on Earth so far has been about 7 billion years old. That's older than the solar system as we know it. Now, to see items even older than 7 billion years old, we have to look outside our solar system and past essentially what's kind of close to us, looking past exoplanets and the Oort cloud and all of that and look at stars. Now we can estimate the age of stars based on many of their properties that we can derive from light, such as the intensity of the light or what's contained within that spectrum. And a lot of the older stars will be metal deficient. so. These older stars formed in a time where there weren't as many metals present, which of course are formed from stars burning for too long and dying and going supernova and their pores getting more and more metal rich and producing these metals. So these very metal poor stars are great indicators of old stars. And the unlike the Sun, which was formed again about 4.53 billion years ago, we, Can look at a star that's about 190 light years away from us and is estimated to be about 14.3 billion years old. So, this is a a strange number because, as we discussed, we kind of know the age of the universe based on a couple different measurements, and it's about 13.8 billion years old. And estimates for the age of the star are saying that's about 500 million years older than the age of the universe. Now, of course, there is some uncertainty, so it's fourteen point three billion years old plus or minus eight hundred million years. But the fact that we've arrived at that number in the first place is quite astonishing. Uh, this is kind of paradoxical and has led to a lot of debate: of is the universe actually the age we think it is? Um, and and we can't really just ask the universe for ID. We have to do a lot of complicated things, such as what Alex is doing to try and figure out: okay what happened at the early formation, what's going on um, on a universe-wide scale. So, so far this star, known as Methuselah also, because apparently all old things get named Methuselah after a biblical person, uh, it's the oldest known object in the observable universe. We have yet to observe something older, uh, and keeping in mind that we, there are some things that we just can't observe or determine their age of, such as black holes, it's very hard to determine their age based on just looking at a black hole. We can kind of estimate it based on stuff that's around it, but it's complicated. So we have this oldest object and we're now discovering other old objects within the universe. So the oldest galaxy called Maisie's Galaxy, which was actually named after an astronomer's daughter on her, because it was discovered on her birthday, uh, it's one of the oldest galaxies found so far and was formed less than 400 million years after the Big Bang. Now, the age of the universe itself is predicted using several methods, which we discussed about beforehand. And, but findings from the James Webb Space Telescope, which is able to see further away from us, and so therefore further into the past, is making us kind of reconsider the age of the universe and, and relook at the calculations that we've based our age estimates on and trying to figure out, okay, how can all of this be possible? How can these galaxies be forming so close to the Big Bang, but show similar complexity to galaxies that took billions of years to form? So there's a lot of questions that have yet to be answered. And who knows what we'll see with new observation techniques, including new telescopes that will be in space and on Earth, as well as recent and future advancements in gravitational wave observations. We may see from all this that our thoughts about how old the universe is actually changes. And as we see further away, and therefore further back in time, who knows what we may discover.
0: Thank you very much for that, Patrick. Yep, the universe got to be older, or the physics we understand about galaxy formation and all that jazz has to change, or our models have to change at least. So thanks everyone for joining us today for our 61st 61st episode with Alex. Um we'll see you in the next one.
2: Alright, thank you very much Alex. Take care. Thank
1: you Alex. Bye everyone.
0: Bye.